You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Tyler Drumheller. Tyler is a, uh, we are former colleagues. He had a 26-year career in CIA and served in a variety of countries, served for some time in Africa, as I recall, Tyler, and uh, came up through the ranks uh, to the point that he was chief of EUR, European Division, at the time of the Iraq Iraq War. Um, That is one of the key positions in the clandestine service of the CIA. Uh, He is one of several... Uh, barons, as they sometimes call them, or division chiefs, who literally oversee everything in their area, whether it's covert action, uh, intelligence collection operations, advising State Department on all all manner of things that come up. It's a very, very key position. Uh, During that period, Tyler saw up close and personal, as they say, the run-up to the war, the run-up to the decision to go to war and actually going to war. He saw how the intelligence, such as it was, was handled within CIA and the interface between CIA, in this case, and the administration. He was sufficiently, and I'll use the word outraged, by what he saw that he chose to do something that really very few intelligence officers do, and that's write a book about specifically about the source of his outrage. The book is called On the Brink. Uh, It came out last year published by uh, uh, Carol and Graf, and uh, I highly recommend it if you want to fill in the details of what we're talking about here today. Tyler, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. Tyler, I'm just going to ask you to address the question that you mentioned to me earlier. You feel there was a corruption of the intelligence process. How would you describe that? And I think I, that's the key point of this book. It's not that I um, – this is surprising to some people. It's not a very uh, – uh, it's a nonpartisan book. It's meant to be. It's not a screed against the administration. But it is. It is a complaint. Uh, what we saw at the start of the Iraq War was the end of a process that really has been building for the last twenty years, which is the 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 intrusion on the intelligence community of partisan politics, which in the end turned the system, the intelligence system, as it's meant to work, on its head. The system should work, and Peter, you know this better than I. Uh, should work when it works at its best. It's something like the Cuban Missile Crisis. The intelligence community collects uh, 
a bit of intelligence that's, that shows there's a threat, they take it to the White House, the White House reacts to it, and then they make policy and it goes forward. In this case, and, and it's not unique to this administration. We saw this, a similar thing with the, uh, but with, in both the Clinton and the Reagan administrations, uh, although at the end of each of those, they recognized where they had gotten off the, the track and they, and they pulled back, one in Bosnia, one in South Africa. But in, uh, in this administration, a small group of people came in with very, very strong preconceptions about uh, about what was the situation in Iraq, what was the future of Iraq, what the threat posed by Iraq to the Middle East. And I say there were several groups. One saw it as unfinished business uh, from the first Gulf War. Some saw it as uh, a way to, to demonstrate American power. But I think the real key was that they there were they had rep- recruited reporting from immigrate groups and other people that they dealt with uh, that uh, Iraqi exile groups that had really they really believed and that's the tricky part here these aren't these aren't people who were trying to start a war to make money for Halliburton and all that that's baloney I think that's not true I think these are people that really believed that they were going to be met when they say they were going to be met with people with flowers and I think they really believed that and what they didn't do and they then they developed a hostility towards particularly the CIA, because we were not telling them what they wanted to hear. We were not confirming. We were questioning it. We were saying we don't have any evidence of that. And they said, well, if you don't have any evidence, they were interpreting either reporting to the contrary or lack of reporting supporting what they had as, as being disloyal. And that's, where, and that's where the political process came into it. At the same time, we'd had a process that, did, that built up beginning, and this was our own fault, I think, since the early 90s. There was a sense that well, we people will understand us better in Congress if we have uh, if we show them what smart young people we have working for us, and so we'll expose some of our young officers and young chiefs of station to congressmen, senators, uh, NSC officials. Where in the where in the, the olden days, Peter, when we were working as case officers, I never ever saw a congressman. I was never allowed anywhere near congressmen or congressional staffers. There was a, that was done by. The, by the upper level management and congressional affairs. And what happens is it, the CIA is a wonderful place, the most talented group of people anywhere, and certainly in the U.S. government. But it is still people. It is still made by people who are ambitious, and it's still a bureaucracy, and people are looking for ways to get ahead. And one of the ways to get ahead, you think, is, you know, how do we please, how do we please the, uh, the principals in this case? The other, and this was complicated by the fact that, that George Tennant, who George and I were very good friends before all this started. We're not such good friends now, I guess, but I, I still like George. But they, uh, um, George had worked his entire career as a congressional staffer, so the, the idea was to please the principal, please the president. And so what they did was, driven by the, uh, by the, the impetus towards war, it became, a, it became an effort to look for things that were, that were, that supported the, the preconceptions or, or led in that direction. And that led to a number of, of issues. The, the uranium yellow cake, uh, which, was dis, uh, which was dispatched pretty early on, uh, wasn't believed by anybody from the, uh, from the start, the, and a number of other things like that. At the end of the day, what they were left with come the fall of 2002 uh, and I was pretty naive. I didn't realize this till I actually had a talk with with the DDCI, John McLaughlin, in in uh, in late 2002, and again in, in January of 2003. 
the, they were down to the one tangible piece of, of intelligence that uh, that they had that had gone into the national intelligence estimate that was used to work to uh, to present to the Senate to vote for the uh, basically the war powers, and that was the reporting from the source curveball that everybody's heard about, and what Bob's book is about, and is a part of my book is about, and the Bob Drogan's book and a portion of my book is about. Um, and that case, if one of the key issues in that case is to remember, and it hasn't ever been said. I mean, I, when I talked about this on 60 Minutes, which is very, all this media stuff is very painful for anybody that's been in the agency. Sure. And so, but when you talked about this on 60 Minutes, uh, I said at the time that uh, uh, one of the, and it never gets put in because I think people who aren't in the intelligence community and the media believe that, oh, well, it's intelligence is intelligence. And the, the, one of the key issues in Kerbal was that Kerbal was a, was a defense intelligence agency case. It wasn't a CIA case. And it was run by the, it was a German case, and the reporting was handled through Munich House, through the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, office in Munich. And so the agency p portion of it was only the analytical part and a, and a certain handling of, of the reporting by the counterproliferation division. But the operational part of it, we had no role in, and European division wasn't, wasn't called in until September of 2002, and the only reason we were bought into it was because uh, people were getting nervous. There was some debate within the, uh, within, the intel within the analytical community, and people wanted to get access to Kerbal. So they came to us to see if we could use our contacts with the German intelligence service, the BND, to get direct access to Kerbal. And in that, that meeting, which I had in Georgetown with the local uh, B&D chief of station here, started this whole process that ended up eventually with me leaving the agency and all these other things. Uh, the, um, the Germans, what we found when we looked at it, when we applied our professional judgment to it, and that's one of the key things in this is too, Peter, is that I, I view being a case officer, and I know you do, as a profession, as a, as, a, as a trade, as a craft that you have to learn. It's like being a lawyer or a doctor or anything else. It's not just something that you can train somebody, send them out and do it. You have to learn how to do it over time. And there are certain standards and standards of, 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 uh, uh, of work that are held to it. And when we looked at this, as we would look at a, one of our cases, and I had one of my very best officers work on it. Uh, uh, she was the chief of the... Uh, She's actually been on television now, so I guess I can say Margaret Hennick was the chief of the German branch at the time, and or central group, they call it, and uh, later the chief of operations for Europe. And what they came up with was that it just didn't rise to the level. We, weren't, we couldn't dispute the facts because we weren't scientists or engineers, and we didn't know, but what we said is this, we would never run a case like this and use the intelligence as, Finnish, as part of finished intelligence because it's never been validated. It's never been verified. No one's ever seen this guy. The Germans won't let us talk to him. The Germans themselves, in fairness to themselves, to them, always said, this is a single-threaded case. We don't have any, any validation for it. And what happened was, I think they came down to the end, and you see this in, in George's book a little bit, is that they, uh, the meetings that they had on the 19th, 20th, 21st with the president, the slam dunk meeting, I think they had gotten so far into it. And the, if you remember at that point, the army was already out in the desert. Much of the, of the army was there. And for them to go back to him at that point and say, you know, that reporting that we were talking about, it probably isn't, there's a lot of questions about it. That 
was not something that was going to be done in this White House. It was something that was not – the atmosphere was not – did not conducive to that. And so in the end, they went ahead. We also – the other part of this, we had, a, we had others – we had another source who was telling us that they didn't have the weapons of mass destruction, and that was actually – totally ignored. But you know, the, I know that's discussed in your book, the other uh, source that we, that the agency itself had recruited. Let me just ask you well, one question on, on, on the curveball. Mm -hmm. um, in, in, I understand that, that uh, Colin Powell went out to the agency right. in preparation for his appearance before the UN, right. where George Tennant appeared uh, beside him, and that he wanted to sort of, as they say, scrub the entire, he wanted to understand the roots of the information. Right. And so... You have said that, by and large, curveball was uh, primarily dealt with on the sub-DIA side and on the agency analytical side. Until yeah, the fall of 2002. Right. Yeah. But when, when it came time for, for Colin Powell to come out and sort of scrub the intelligence, did the clandestine service, which had its doubts, in effect have a seat at that table? Were they able to register their uh, ambivalence about curveball as a source? As far as I can tell, and I'm, I didn't. And I don't believe, and I've never been able to pin them down on this, is I don't even believe that the DDO, Jim Pavitt, was at that meeting. I think it was the analysts, it was the DDCI, McLaughlin, and Tennant, whether Jim was in or out. But when they asked, um, and I talked to an analyst who was there, when they asked George, you know, is this true, you better believe, they said, absolutely, this is 100%, you know, completely reliable source. Now, just... The Wednesday before that, I had met with McLaughlin, and McLaughlin denies this, or I think he's, he now is saying he sort of remembers the meeting, but they have the, and warned them that we thought this case might be a fabricator, that he might that he might be a fabricator. We couldn't establish that he was a fabricator because we'd never met him, you know, we didn't even know. But we said certainly his what he's saying doesn't rise to the level of what should be used in Finnish intelligence, and certainly not something you go to war on. And so I think Powell, Powell had to have his. Pal had to have doubts because he kept asking, and certainly he's a smart guy. He knows, and if you listen to Larry Wilkerson, certainly they were they were uneasy. But at the end of the day, they asked, you know, is this good? And they were told this is good. And I, and the operational part of it was never told. They were never told there was. And Powell said this: they were never told that there were questions being raised by other parts of the agency. They were never told that there was a, a debate, a, a furious, heated debate going on in, between. The, the DO and the DI, the Director of Intelligence and Director of Operations, over this reporting. And so, yeah, it's one of those things. Again, I think people were caught up, Peter, and they wanted, and there was a, there was an, a, a momentum for war at that point. Because remember, at that point, you're talking about late January. Now, yes. And, and one of the things I think they feared, because we really believed, and I can't go into too much detail, but we really believed that had... I mean, no one's saying that Saddam Hussein should still be in power and all that. But the, we really believe the issue here was how the war was to be run. And one of the things that people were afraid of that were pushing for the early uh, war was that, was that there would be a wider participation by maybe France or other, other uh, Arab countries uh, that would come in sort of like a first Gulf War coalition, because there was a real desire on the part of some of the neocons, as they call them, and you can see this in some of their writings, to demonstrate uh, uh, American power. And there was, they, they really wanted to do that. And so there was almost, because I'm convinced that had we waited, 
done this, allowed Blix to go, Hans Blix to go back for three months of the final uh, review. Because what he was saying, he wasn't saying they didn't have anything. He was saying what, what I said, what, 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 what our, since our, right. our high-level source told us. They had a program. They wanted to have a program. They were just didn't have anything. They couldn't do it, and they were years away from getting it. But certainly their intent was there, and if they could get it, they would. So it's something that had to be dealt with. If they had let that play out, I think they could have built the type of Gulf War. The, in this day and age, financially and otherwise, it's the only t- way you can approach a, a military situation like that is, is a large coalition like First President Bush did. And then you would have had this is all hypothetical, then you would have had sufficient troops to occupy the country and prevent the looting from beginning and maybe control this. I mean, one of the things they always drew, uh, they always drew uh, uh, analogies to, a lot of the people that were supporting this, was was the uh, World War II, the end of World War II. And they said this, you know, this, uh, you know, you built a democracy in Germany. Well, what they skipped over, the historical part of it is, that at the end of World War II, Germany was three feet tall. I mean, it was bombed to smithereens. There was nothing left of German society, basically. There were six million occupation troops in Germany, and we still didn't let them have elections for three years. And then it was the, the, the district elections. They began very low level from the, from the ground up. So there was this constant rush, this rush, rush, rush through everything, rush to the war, rush to the, uh, uh, through the occupation, the, the, the provisional authority, rush to the Constitution, rush to have the elections. And then they got it. And, and what that did was what the British warned us about at the meeting on the 12th of September that I talk about. In my book, they wouldn't let me put it in, but it's in George's book, so I can say it was with the British. On the 12th of September, where uh, George said they came to give us to express solidarity. They actually came to plan the war in Afghanistan. But, they, uh, but the first thing that David Manning said at that meeting, uh, who's then Blair's security advisor and later uh, the ambassador here, was let's agree Afghanistan first, not Iraq. And George said, absolutely, we are, we're all in agreement with that. There are guys at the White House, but we know. Because he said, learn from the mistakes we made in the 1920s. Because he said, once you knock the top off of the Iraqi society, you're going to have a mess that's going to take you years and years and years to put back together. So that's where, that's where it ends well, up. Here. That's fascinating, Tyler. I, I must say, in listening to your story, to listening to your narrative, and knowing that you sort of were astride the intelligence that was being produced for, mm-hmm. for, the, uh, for the administration, clearly the agency did not, as they sometimes say, cook the books. No. What perhaps was not surfaced were some of the internal doubts about some of the intelligence that was making its way to the top. And the administration, on the other hand, did not so much distort intelligence, but use the intelligence that it chose. That's right. Is they, this a fair... They cherry-picked. Uh, it was actually <clears throat> Senator McCain who said it. When I testified to the Silver and Rob Commission, he said... So they cherry-picked what they wanted to use. And I said, yeah, that's right, they cherry-picked the intelligence they wanted to use. And I think that's, that's, that's a good way to, to, to sum it up, Peter, in, in that they have, um, in, in, at the end of the day, one of the thing, reasons I did this, one of the reasons I, I wrote this book was I was in the fall, in the spring and summer of 2004, when this really began to take shape and people began to say, ah, something's wrong, you know. They said, well, it's, a to- it's an intelligence payer, and it's because George Tennant and the agency are a bunch of idiots, and so we'll bring Porter Goss in here and straighten it all out. And that's why I said, this is ridiculous. We're going to be – it's just what 
Steve Kappa said to me the night before the war, we were sitting in my office, and he said, this is going to end badly, and we're going to get blamed for it. And that's, and, you know, and that's the point. And I said, you know, there is a story here. It's not a perfect story. The agency wasn't perfect. They certainly weren't perfect, but they didn't cook the books. You're right. I feel a, a certain level, amount of guilt. I mean, I, I don't know what else I could have done, but I still think there's, you know, you, you look back and say, I should have gone to Powell directly, which is what Powell says. Maybe, but as you know, Peter, you know, it's a, still a disciplined organization, and you still, it's hard to do that. It's hard to go around that. You know. Well, that's, that's, that's the uh, thing that's thrown at George Tennant when, when uh, uh, he went to Condoleezza Rice and said something's going to happen, and he didn't think, they didn't think anything happened with the information. People say, why didn't you go to the president? It's, and that's the same issue you're yeah, raising. Why don't we go to the, the next level? Why don't yeah. we go to the president? Yeah, and, I'm, and, that's, and that's the issue for the future. That they, that, that's the lesson to be learned here is the DCI has to be able to have the relationship to the president where he can go and say, I'm going to tell you something that you're not going to like and, it's, and have that not interpreted as disloyalty or, or, or lack of zeal. And, that's, and that is where at the end of the day, the real, people get very upset when I say this, but it really wasn't an intelligence It's a policy failure. It's a policy failure fed by uh, a, a corruption of the intelligence system and and certain elements of the intelligence system were sort of quizzlings for it, and that was that was much of what comes out of your book, and mm -hmm. it's a fascinating story, is your sense that those people who were in effect speaking truth to power, mm -hmm. because of the politicization of the process, were held by the administration to somehow be disloyal or not right. support not supporting the team or whatever. Right. And that's what you're saying right now, that the DCI, yeah. we need to always have that, that, that acceptance of being able to deliver bad news and not be considered disloyal. And I think the reaction to this was, was to disperse the intelligence community, make the DCI a weaker figure than he was in the past, make the DNI, instead of being really responsible for the whole community, a coordinator of types. And they need to get back. The person that runs the intelligence community has the people out in the field and analysts have to have a sense, a clear sense, that they're carrying out policies uh, and they will be backed out, backed up, up the line to the to the director, and that the director is able to go to the president. I mean, there a lot of, you know, William Casey had a lot of foibles, and people you can go back and forth and debate. But one thing you knew that if you told Casey something and he thought it was wrong, he could go right to the president, the president would say, okay. And that's actually sort of what happened on South Africa, which, you know, he, where the Reagan administration actually changed its policy based on our reporting on the South African nuclear, nuclear weapons. You know. So it, it's, it is, uh, uh, it ha you have to have, it can't just be the quirk of nature that, that, it, that the person who's DCI happens to have that type of clout. They need to find the person that will do that. The problem is people don't want to be DCI anymore. Everybody has to dig around to find somebody to be DCI. But that's, that's another issue. Well, it is. And I think uh, we, that, in a sense, can't go on because I think the times are, are too dangerous, really, for all of us. Yeah, no other country to, in the to world To not has be able to tolerate yeah. a, a, a speak truth to power intelligence community. Yeah. That's yeah. true. I mean, yeah. absolutely. It's, it is. You can't have the most powerful country that ever existed not have an efficient, effective intelligence community. Yeah. Tyler, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, a fascinating account. Uh, people are interested in the details, and I hope they are, and they should be. 
Uh, Tyler's account is on the brink, an insider's account of how the White House compromised American intelligence. I just heard today it's going to come out in paperback in March, so you can look for it. <laughs> Have we got the makings of a movie here? Who knows? <laughs> Tyler, no. thank you again. Okay, Forward thanks, to seeing you again. Take okay. care. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.